more of what we're aiming for. <clears throat> Especially on a Sunday where the reading includes sex and language and all the other fun stuff that adults uh, talk about. Um, before we really get started, I should say that I had a cough for give or take six to eight days. It's hard to remember when it started. And then, you know how those things can, over time, I think it's because you don't sleep as well, begin to eke into your, like, brain, too. Um, and so, this morning, I'm going to try and do my best to hold it all together as, as we do the sermon. But as many of you know, I preach largely from memory. And so, head cold, brain, mess, we'll see where we get to. Which reminds me that we should start with, I ask you for to read that readings for the moment, because normally I work with the worship leaders uh, to have them read that reading from Matthew. And so that's great, because he just walked in and I was like, hey, read this passage about cutting your hands off and going to hell. It mentions hell three or four times. So wake up. Now is the time. <laughs> and so all the readings are supposed to tie together, and they at least tie together in my mind. So that the psalm mentioned, you know, this foolish and wise thing that also comes up in and so that's, but I don't always mention it. So I thought today, with my head thing, it would be very important to mention that right off the bat is, is that this idea that Paul starts with in this passage is don't even have a hint of sexual immorality, impurity, greed, these things among you. Uh, this is where people get like, well, I don't really like the Apostle Paul that much, right? And sometimes I wonder, like, well, if you don't like Paul, you're really going to love Jesus. Because those words from Matthew, those, those are heightened. Those are harsh as well. Those are, those are a, a tough teaching. You know, we, we often forget that, like, Jesus is the one who talks about love, mercy, and forgiveness. And, and that's sort of an unfair tension, because if you were to put, like, all the passages that have to be with hell in the New Testament together, a majority of them would come from Jesus himself. And so we have this weird memory that Paul's the problem, but Jesus, he doesn't bring up any of these which, which is that's why we read that passage from Matthew. Because his his way, Jesus has this way, and Paul with the early church has this way of heightening all these ethical demands. I mean, we think of it as like this will be easier now. We have a God who is rich in mercy, is what Paul said in Ephesians. We have God who is rich in grace and mercy for us, and He reminds us that we've been given this inheritance and this gift and all this goodness from this God who's the Father, who's adopting us into this life. That's, that's what we have. But we forget about the second half, which comes after the therefore. Therefore, having this identity, having been claimed in this way, this is how you are to live your lives. Therefore, knowing that this is what's set up for you, here's how you are to move and be in the world. This is one of the things that came to me this week, is therefore knowing the end of the story. These are the possibilities that are available to you in the moment. Which is one of the things that's true about Christianity. Is therefore, as having participated and seen the end of the story in Christ's glorious resurrection, we too know how it ends. And so what Paul then reminds them is, here's how you can carry that identity into the present. And so if the reason for that reading was to sort of suggest that, that this, is, this is the message of the New Testament. But the hard part about this is, is so Jesus and Paul, they want to get in, and this is, I was talking to somebody about this this week, is they want to get into your libido, your, your sexual drive. They want to get into your language, uh, how you use words. They want to get into to how you have conflict. They want to get into your pocketbook. 
which is like the list of things I named off that 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 the spirit and, and Paul and Jesus think should be affected by this sexuality, your finances, and your um uh your business practices and how you use language. Most of us wouldn't on on face value sign up for that. Because that confronts a lot of what's important to us. It confronts a lot of our reality. It confronts a lot, especially in the modern world, things that we deem as sort of private. And yet what Paul and Jesus are about is getting into those cracks. And I think the reason they want to get into those cracks is because they want to, they know that's where the power is. You know, what you desire, whom you desire. How you, how you go about living your sexuality, that's where power is. Uh, Philip, Philip Reif, a Jewish sociologist in the 1960s, talked about how for Christianity, it was very important to get into redefining the sexual morals of the day because that's where their power base was. Because they were showing they could reorient and re-restrict, like, like put a gutter on a, uh, a rudder on a ship and like steer it in a completely different direction. And so for the early Christian communities, one of the things that stood out about them is that their worship didn't sort of culminate in an orgy, like, but in a meal together. One of the things that stood out about them is they no longer went to these temple places of, of prostitution. Now, if you've seen um, pottery from the ancient world or the frescoes from um, the city destroyed by the volcano, Pompeii, um, bad day for history major, um, the... Uh, they include all these sort of sort of sexual positions, sexual Kama Sutra for the ancient Greco-Roman world. But what but what most people who study this know about that is a lot of those people, those were not voluntary consensual situations. These were violently held slaves. These were religious rituals that would get out of control. These were, and so one of the things that the early Christian community spoke like massive waves to the world is that they began to change their business practices. They began to change the ways in which they carried themselves sexually into the world. They began to guard the way they used their words. And this was their witness. This was how they witnessed in the world through the authenticity of the life that they've been called to in Jesus. And that gets to probably the chief theme that I'm trying to get through in Ephesians is that, is that we're, as a community, thinking about how do we set our witness up, our common life together as a church, so that we too form a contrast as a church to the way that the world is. Because one of the things that I believe at the moment is that, you know, if we're going to think about how the church is going to grow in faithfulness, which is different than grow, um, grow in faithfulness and truth and in the love of God in this this postmodern or, or late 21st century northern world, is that it probably be best to us to look backwards, but not backwards to what worked, let's say, in the 1950s, and not backwards to what worked in the 1600s at the time of the Reformation, but to look backwards to those first three centuries of church history. Because they confronted, in, in sort of rampant sexuality, rampant violence, rampant sort of untamed rage throughout their world, the same conditions that I think we confront in a lot of ways. They confronted a lot of sort of uh, distraction and idle talk. They confronted the ways in which you could turn yourself to different things. They, they, they had what we would call the, um, the NCAA 
to distract themselves from the concerns of the modern world or the NFL or the MLB, whatever you want to say. Is, and so what the early Christians did, they had um, dramas, which is one of the first things that the early Christians stopped participating in, was sort of these big, which I'm not saying, hey, let's let's all shoot our TVs, which there's a great line from a, uh, a monk who said, you know, the best thing you could do tomorrow is buy a gun and shoot your TV and then donate the gun for scrap metal. You'll have done three good things that day. Um, <laughs> I'm not talking about that necessarily, but I'm talking about the ways in which we can sort of look at our lives together, mutually, which is the way this witness worked. They, they were a contrast society for the world around them. Because they didn't do these things, they built up a contrast. Now, one of the things that that shouldn't surprise us about is because salt and light, where Jesus uses in, in um, before where Buford read about what the church is supposed to be, what the community of disciples is supposed to be. Salt and light is contrast language as well. Salt brings out something different. Light shines in darkness. And so the whole point of sort of this Ephesians series as I've been trying to get into it is to draw out, and we're almost near the end, so hopefully I made it clear today if I wasn't clear before, to dry out what does it mean for the church to be a contrast society in the world. But not just the church in Ephesus, but the church in Glenwood Springs. And so this, um, Paul starts today's section by talking about how you're not to have a hint of these things among you. Not to have um, sexual immorality or impurity or greed because they're improper for God's holy people. And one of the things that he's laying out here is that these are the ways in which we cheapen the world. We cheapen ourselves with these things. We cheapen who we are. And so we're, we're to call to cost, that we're, not, we're called not to have these among us. And one of the things I didn't point out last week is one of the amazing parts about the book of Ephesians is almost everything you're not supposed to do includes dehumanizing another person. Whether it's stealing whether it's um, uh, the sexual immorality that he's talking about here, whether it's not guarding your words, all of it includes like a community and the way that a community is functioning and the way that other people are seeing that community. It doesn't have a lot of sense of solo, individual sort of sin. It's, it's talking about it in this larger way. And one of the things that we'll get to in two weeks is Paul is going to say that this is a conflict. This is a huge conflict, but this conflict isn't with flesh and blood but with principalities and powers. And so as we live our lives in this sort of destructive fear, uh, destructive um, era, this, with these destructive temptations around us, it's not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers that are being torn down. Now, the sexuality one, I just... What should I want to say about this? Um, man, this week was weird, because both I had a, a fellow pastor tell me that he wasn't quite concerned that sex was reserved for marriage, that he wasn't going to tell anybody in his church that that was important. But it, look, it's the 21st century. Nothing really surprises me. But I was like, you're a pastor. Like, and you're throwing off that concern. Now, one of the things that, that I always tell people is that growing up the type of Presbyterian I did is that you start to take sin seriously by not taking it that seriously. Like, God forgives. You can move on. But you're really just punning that off right there, just right up front, like, we're not even going to talk about that. That's not even going to be part of our reality. Um, and it, particularly because what, what is happening in, in the Bible in those times is that, like, you don't see that 
laid out flatly, but what you do see is this idea of the reclamation of human persons so that you don't violate them in that way. You don't put them at risk in that way, you know. And then, and then you see also on the other side that this uh, sexual union fuses people together in Genesis. Like it makes one thing. There were two things and now it's one thing. It's like bodies saying to one another, we're just permanently together now. And then when you rip that apart, you rip something big apart. Which isn't to say that I'm all that concerned about moralism. Maybe it should be. But to say that like we live in a world where we're trying to make peace with these things instead of see them as the enemy that they can't be. Which is even more shocking when I read um, a news story from a, a well-known New York Times bestselling pastor from Denver who was saying that pornography is okay as long as it's ethically sourced. Now, yeah, I, I, I have like 100 jokes I can make after that line. Um, you know, free range, this, that, and the other. But the, the jokes aren't really worth it because the point is so difficult. Um, the point is so stark, right? That like that to, that we can we can say that like instead of saying that we shouldn't even have a hint of these things, let's move them into the house. Let's say that they're okay. And this, I mean, anybody who's um, my more progressively minded friends would say, but you're leaving out things, so let's not leave out things. You know, the ways in which we spend our money, the ways in which we build up excessive wealth. There's lots of things in the New Testament that that maybe we don't talk about, but we should talk about all of them, because then they name the ways in which we can become more whole. They're not meant to name the ways in which we can punt you out of the fellowship of believers most of the time. They're meant to name the ways, the goal, in which we were being drawn up into the God who's called us and named us as saints. So that's a different way of looking at it. Now, now people are worried about legalism and and that thing, and I think it's an important thing, but if you're worried about, but I don't think you cast off the other concerns at the meantime. I don't think you say, well, then let's just make peace with these things that are supposed to be what are drawing us down, and that we're not supposed to have a hint of it. And so that's that portion of the sermon. Moving on, done with sex for the day. <laughs> it's always my favorite thing. Obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking are other things that you're not supposed to have alone. We talked about this last week, but the church is to be a community of word care, of language care. Because what happens here, as Paul is saying, is that you're not going to have a hint of the activities alone. And I should have said, the two other things referenced there are like triggering towards idolatry, impurity and greed, um, the two things named there in the in, in in the Greek, when you go back and trace them throughout the Old Testament, those are like moving towards idolatry. In, in Romans, Paul sets up that like we exchange the worship of God for natural things, and then we spin out into these false things. And so this is why Paul here is in shorthand saying, "Don't have these things among you." But he even heightens it up, and at the end of Romans one, he says this too. He goes through, "Who among you gossips? Who among you um, betrays? Who among you has greed? These are things too that." You also is cast out. And so Paul is saying that as you build up these ways of resisting the big things, you build up ways of resisting the little things. Coarse, joking, foolish talk. Now, there are like, there's plenty of ways in which the sex part can make somebody feel guilty. But for me, it's like, check, check, okay, those are big ones. Let's move down the list. And it's like, coarse, joking, foolish talk, obscenity. I don't get A's in those things, but it certainly calls out something in my life. Um, 
It calls out the ways in which, which we use cheap talk. I went through a year where I decided to stop talking in memes or sarcasm. Well, it was sarcasm, but it was also like me and my sister had watched too many SNL clips on YouTube and all my friends had. And so we would talk through these YouTube clips that were like totally unfruitful for having real, generous, kind conversation. Um, or, I mean, if you've been around me long enough, Anchorman is one that I can also talk through. Um, uh, wow, that escalated quickly. It would be a good title for today's sermon, um, which is a line from Anchorman. If you haven't seen it, don't. <clears throat> Point being is the to guard language and to live with language in a way that it builds holiness among you. Because what happens is when those things begin to enter, especially in a conversation, the world fractures. Like things fracture down from there. What becomes a big deal? What becomes this? Which isn't to say that we can't have fun and we can't talk, we can't do this, but that this is our appearance to a watching world is sort of what Paul appears to be saying here. Is that if you talk about these things, people will overhear you and see you. And that contrast society will begin to lose its contrast. It'll begin to lose its, its bite. And so it moves, put this section into the second section, which says, <clears throat> for once you were in darkness, but now you are in light in the Lord. And we talked about Paul's big analogies. And <clears throat> like I said, sick. Not just big analogies, but big contrasts in, in Ephesians. There are, you were dead, but now you are alive is chapter two. You take off what is old and you put on what is new in chapter five, four. In chapter 5, you were in darkness, and now you are in light, is the contrast. That, that these are the ways that Paul sets up the imagination for believers, is that you're moving from these things, dead, uh, old, darkness, into new light and alive. And that this is the life we take on. And so when we think about darkness, one of the things I was thinking about is that I finally reached the age, or near the age, where like, I kind of believe nothing but happens after 9 p.m. anyways, which I'm sure just makes me a cranky parent. Um, but uh, when you think about darkness, and not even like, that's just a joke about like the time of day, but think about darkness in your own life. When you sit down in places to sort of binge on something and, and, to, and to take it in and to, <coughs> and to sit, sort of sit with it, darkness has this way of drawing us deeper in. And one of the things that was pointed out this week is that darkness has no shame either. But in darkness, you can just go further and further into those dark deeds. You can go further and further into those places. So what does light do? Light shines upon it. Light names it. In biblical language, light has this way of disarming. Light exposes in, in this passage is what it says is that have nothing to do with these dark deeds, but expose them. And many people struggled with this part. What does it mean to expose them this week? But what they kind of all settle on is what they meant is that the Christian life together is supposed to be such a contrast to the world that when the other things come near to it or when they go out into the world, that the light exposes those things for what they are. It exposes them for emptiness. It exposes them as shallow. It exposes them as the deforming of another person. It exposes the ways in which they draw us down. 
And this is a hard truth. The struggle to build up light here in this place or in any church is also the call to be in such a light that exposes the darkness around you. Now that's a hard, hard call. But what I think that means is that there's ways for the church to build its life together, to share its life, in which that its light shines out. We do this through meals at Shelley's house this week. We can do this through going out and, and, and um, sharing something together, but not with overconsumption. We can do this, I think, most, most amazingly through practices of fasting and feasting, self-denial, but also practices of gathering up parties in ways in which they build us up. There are ways in which we can expose with our lives together. We expose as, as this sort of light in the world. And so we are called to be these people who, who draw everything in the light because it becomes visible. And there, what is illuminated becomes a light. What I like about this is, is Paul is almost tracing your journey from darkness to light. You were in darkness, and you were dragged into the light. And do you know what happened there? Not shame, not anxiety, but what you found is that you were drawn and lifted up into the light. That you became illuminated through that in such a way that you didn't go back to darkness. It's a powerful, powerful thing about becoming a Christian, is that when you come into this light, the goal isn't for you to experience shame or anxiety or to find yourself even more lost, but to find yourself basking in the goodness of truth and life and beauty that God provides for us. To become illuminated by the light that is Christ is the call. Drunkenness, we'll say just a quick about word about drunkenness. Drunkenness here is, is, is a stand-in. It means drunkenness, one, but it also is a stand-in for all these other ways in which we dim our reasoning, which we talked a little bit about last week. There's a passage in Amos, this little book of Amos, that talks about when people are drunk, they lay on ivory beds, um, they, they have idle talk, and they can't anticipate the evil day. So drunkenness here is this, is this pattern of sort of moving into sloth if there was a sin associated with drunkenness. It's not being able to guard your language. It's not being able to speak together. It's not being able to notice the times that are upon you. It's to just let time slip away. Which is why the next word, we'll end the sermon with just two Greek words. Because my voice is not going to go much longer. This is a sideways, so oh, I can look up there. Um, sorry. <coughs> the first Greek word, this is the one for time. Um, Kim, yours probably said something similar to mine, which is, um, do the Lord's will, do not get drunk with wine. Oh, we're supposed to speak with hymns and psalms to one another, which when you think about it, to sing our way through life is a beautiful thing. But um, what he says is that the days, oh yeah, making the most of every opportunity. This is the way it's going to appear in most of your Bibles. Making the most of every opportunity. That is one Greek word, and that Greek word is most often used to redeem or to buy. What does it mean to redeem or buy back the time? See, I think that's different. Making the most of every opportunity becomes sort of this moralistic project on our own to make the most of every opportunity. I'll sell you a curriculum that will help you make most of out of every opportunity for $20. 
um, is sort of the way if you see it on productivity blogs is that you are going to make the most of your day every day. But in effect, Paul is talking about is the ways in which the community can buy back time, redeem time is another way this Greek phrase is translated. What does it mean to redeem time? And one of the ways I was thinking about this, going back to Christians or people who know how the story ends, is it means to redeem time through uh, one of the essays that had the biggest influence on my life. It's titled The Ethical Significance of the Trivial. What the author talks about is, is that in, and this is the 1980s, he wrote this, in the midst of the nuclear age, when everything is supposed to be drawn into what do we do about the nuclear age, he said it's time for Christians to regain the ethical significance of the trivial. Because if we know God restores all things, if we know God's purpose to make creation new, things become possible for us that aren't possible. What's your response to... Um, to the age we're in, uh, the darkness that's around us, it's quilting. So you can you can regain things to redeem time because what does quilting take? Lots and lots of time. And through the methods of, of regaining the trivial, we sing songs together, watch a baseball game, cook a good meal, love your children. Raise your children well. The ways in which we can redeem time is by doing things that don't add up in the modern world. Well, how is that doing anything to resist this thing? How is that doing anything to deal with the biggest issue we all have at the moment? And there are, like, there's no shortage of biggest issues right now that want to take over your lives and make you live in a certain way. But what Paul calls us to do is to redeem and buy back the time. And I think that means for us is to take time to, to bless one another, to make gifts for one another, to care for one another. One of the most wasteful things and one of the most important ways to buy back the time is a life of prayer. To everybody on the outside, what the heck are you doing? Everything is burning around us and you're going to take time to pray. And yet the witness of redeeming time through acts that don't compute, don't add up just to something bigger. It's like throwing a wrench into the system. We might find ways to deeper humanize one another, to humanize those who we think of as our enemies, and to not just see life as this continual fight, this continual way of, of sort of trying to make sure everything turns out all right, or gathering the most. I mean, see, there's, there's other temptations here, too. There isn't just the temptation to respond to everything in the moment. There's the temptation to make as much money as you can. Take time to redeem the time that God has given us. And the last thing, which is the counterweight to all of this, is thanksgiving. But the thanksgiving, the word that we have for thanksgiving, is this word, which, does anybody know what that word looks like that we do every Sunday together? Eucharist. The word that Paul uses as the counterweight twice in this section is to give thanksgiving. What is your song of resistance to the modern world? What is the ways you're going to push back the darkness that comes upon you? What are the ways in which you're going to build a life and a community that can withstand all of these temptations? Thanksgiving. What I think Paul means by that is this act of worship that resets all the possibilities, that draws us back into the gift that things are from God, that draws us back into the heart of things, 
Because as we pointed out, this is the word for meal that we celebrate. That draws us back to that Christ broke the bread and gave thanks. These are the truths of what happened here, these acts of thanksgiving. What does the resistance look like in Christian language? It looks like thanksgiving. Now, I mentioned uh, being able to buy the last book of the Hunger Games so fast uh, last week or two weeks ago. Did anybody actually read them? Lots of people read them. I didn't like the last book very much, but I did like the way it ended because after everything has happened, it's how long has it been out? 10 years? Spoiler alert. If you want to read it, plug your ears, go get a donut, whatever. Um, after the end of what has happened, there was this giant sort of like slavery complex that was governing the world. And this, what, this teenager, um, Katniss Everdeen is her name, we'll just call her Katniss, has been part of bringing down that whole thing. And what's replaced it is not that much better. See, this is the problem with systems of violence like that. And at the end of the novel, she's dealing with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And she, she wakes up at times in, in the midst of her daily life with her kids, feels absolute uncontrollable rage that she doesn't know what to do with. But she says, when I get to those moments, what does she do? She counts her blessings. She counts the things she can give thanks for. After having toppled what would have been the greatest enemy of that time, and seeing that not much better came out on the other end, the best thing that she knows how to do is garden, another practice that redeems time, and give thanks to get through the moment. Paul calls us into this, being this Eucharisto community together, to redeem the time and to give thanks for one another. So it's not all bad if you start off at, at the beginning of this chapter. Don't have a hint of this among you. The Bible never leaves you without, without new things to grasp onto, to build a life together, to make a home in the world. Let us pray.